You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another History of the Great War interview. This time, I'm joined once again by Jesse Alexander public historian and a member of the real-time history team. And today we're here to talk about propaganda and, and cartoons during the First World War. Jesse, how's it going today? I'm doing all right, man. Thanks a lot for having me on again. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, it's it's, it's great to talk with you again about a topic that I know you've done some research on that um, is really niche, really unique, and I think really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think so too. Actually, I would argue that if one sort of plays close pays close enough attention it becomes less and less niche uh, the deeper you get into it but we'll see quick preview of what's to come <laughs> <laughs> so w- when we're talking about the first world war you know i think one of the overall themes of of the war of the war years is kind of this adaptation and change in what the war is and how countries are approaching the war and the effects that it has. When we start looking at things like propaganda over the course of that war, do we see a major shift between what is being printed at the beginning of the war and what you might see as we move towards its conclusion? Yes. I mean, the war changes, the war effort changes, total war, arguably, debatably, uh, sort of develops, uh, in particular, the last uh, two and a half years. And so, of course, propaganda being a fundamental part of that modern, let's call it total war for the sake of, uh, for the sake of today's uh, chat, uh, shifts as well. I mean, of course, there are some constants, you know, our side good, your side bad, uh, keep fighting, etc., etc. But there are quite a lot of things that change. One of them is the degree of government involvement. And this grows almost, one could say, exponentially in all belligerents, with the possible exception of Russia and the Ottoman Empire to some extent, because things are much less developed there. And this grows over time. Uh, To take the British as an example, I mean, at the beginning of the war, they found the famous Wellington House to kind of get their propaganda organization going. But by 1917, they have a full-on Department of Information in the kind of Orwellian sense of that of that word. And the other belligerents kind of do similar. The Germans have the Kriegspresse, Amt, uh, the French have the Maison de la Presse, and so on. But 
the degree of sophistication and the degree of penetration of government involvement in public life uh, and public information relating to the war increases quite a lot to the point where you have things like the Italian, I don't speak any Italian, so I may be massacring this, Servizio Propaganda, um, kind of reminds you of Second World War type stuff where they kind of infiltrate their own army and are not only trying to inform the troops of what they should be thinking, but also spying on them and reporting them. So I think that government involvement really uh, is a part of that development. But also as the war situation changes, the topics of propaganda also change. So Germany at, at the very start, Russia is kind of the big topic, the big threat. And then it becomes Britain very quickly. Um, and you have, you know, Gott strafe England, God punish England being kind of woven into the fabric of, fabric of public life. And then in the last few years of the war, where populations are really suffering the deprivations of the war, more on the central power side, but not exclusively, you have themes like food shortages, you know, holding out until the end. We are fighting for peace. We're not fighting as much for honor or whatever anymore. And, you know, I, I get flashbacks to the research that I did uh, years ago when I think about these things. Like, there's this great little German poster encouraging people to collect beech nuts so they could use the oil because they had massive shortages of all fats and oils. So there's like this little forest gnome from sort of Germanic, you know, fairy tales. And he's got all these nuts and the slogan is like, collect beech nuts. And the subtext is because we're all starving, but that's not on the poster, you know? Um, yeah, of course, the, there are other changes in, the, in terms of like the language and the imagery as well. Uh, at the beginning of war, there's more sort of chivalry, knights, uh, St. George slaying the dragon. Uh, there's more text uh, on, on a lot of these uh, propaganda, printed propaganda materials. But as the war goes on, the art, artistic side, I guess you could say, becomes much more modern. There's a bigger reliance on imagery, on dramatic and extreme imagery. And also this concept of suffering and longing for peace being, uh, being sort of depicted. Like there's uh, two very famous Austro-Hungarian propaganda pieces that are interesting. Right at the beginning of the war, when war breaks out, the emperor puts out this, this famous speech called To My Peoples, right? An meine Völker. And it's a huge poster with a very long speech written down. It's only words. There's no images, right? This was postered up throughout the empire and so on for the literate people to go and read and share with the others if it's in a, a village or something like that. And then one of the last uh, war bonds drives in Austria-Hungary in 1918, it's like this grim landscape depicted with not many features and a soldier sort of huddled down in the mud looking straight at the person looking at the poster saying, help me, buy war bonds, right? So these are two worlds apart, man. And I think, and that's kind of the, the example that I always think of. Um, there are a few others, you know, like the, um, the Germans and Austro-Hungarians at the beginning actually bragged about how kind of harsh they were being. 
the Austrians, of course, executed quite a lot of Serbs and uh, Ruthenians or Ukrainians because they suspected they were spies and so on and so forth, even though they were own citizens much of the time. And they made postcards of the executions to spread them around to make sure that people knew, hey, we better not you know, be spies. And the Germans, of course, struck this commemorative medal for the sinking of the Lusitania. And that doesn't happen anymore at the, you know, after the first year, year and a half of the war, because it's shooting yourself in the foot. So people kind of also get wiser to the mistakes. In the case of the Central Powers, perhaps it was a bit too late. Yeah. So one of the things I'm curious about, you know, we're talking about this evolution and how um, how things changed. How did like hmm, like the propaganda arms in the various governments get like feedback? Right. Coming from a modern perspective, I think of like, oh, they put out a poster and then they do some polling and then they get the polling and then they analyze the numbers and make changes. It's not really how it was. That wasn't possible, you know, 100 years ago. So, so what is kind of driving some of this change? I mean, I'm not an expert on polling. I do know that there were actually some done. Uh, in particular, in the U.S., they, they polled uh, newspaper editors as to what their position on the war was and what they thought their readers' position on the war was and so on. So there is a bit of that. Uh, there may be more than I know of, but uh, censorship is a big deal. Reading people's mail is an important guideline to what people are thinking. How often are they mentioning this? How often are they mentioning that? Uh, you know, what are the soldiers saying about how they feel about the way the war is going, uh, how they feel about their leaders, their generals and officers, and so on and so forth. So censorship is, is definitely one of the, if not the major ways of kind of keeping tabs on, on what people are thinking and then sort of adjusting your course uh, in response to that. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned the United States there, and the United States is in kind of an interesting position in the war. You know, um, is there kind of a unique evolution present in American uh, propaganda because of their neutral status for for so much of the conflict and the kind of uh, middle ground that they kind of occupied for several years? Yeah, uh, there is in a way, I think. And kind of is sort of the key word there as far as, as, far as uh, middle ground goes and as far as the differences go. There were some differences because, you know, they were able to observe the, the conflict without being involved uh, for the first three years. Plus, there was a very large German community in the U.S. and they had their own newspapers. And in generally, they were largely supportive of Germany until the U.S. entered the war. So that's a dynamic that you really don't have in any of the belligerent countries, uh, obviously, or even in Italy before it joined. Um, but of course, in general, the, the kind of the media and press opinion and opinion of the elites in general was pro-allied even before the, um, before the U.S. joins the war. And this shouldn't be exaggerated, but that was helped along by British and French propaganda in the U.S. So neutral countries were a target, especially the U.S., and the British had an advantage there, right? Because, of course, the U.S. newspapers, they want to sell copies, so they want to print news about the war. And one way to do it is to just reprint articles from the British press, which is subject to censorship, which is kind of being driven by the 
propaganda organs of the British government. So that will then reach the American reading public, in particular, the educated decision makers, elites, and so on, who are going to make the decision in the end of, of you know, what the US policy is going to be in the war. And the British were also kind of sneaky about it. They, one of the important works that they published from their US uh, headquarters base, um, propaganda headquarters, was called 60 American Views on the War. And there were some famous authors, novelists, and so on, who contributed their opinion and so forth. Nowhere in that is it indicated that this comes from British. It's just as though these, you know, leading lights of American literature decided, oh man, we really want to get together and put our opinion, and it's very pro-allied. So that does kind of have, um, does kind of have an influence. And then, of course, the U.S. is miles ahead of where the other belligerent countries were in 1917, compared to where they were in 1914. Right. So when the U.S. joins the war. They immediately hit the ground running and organize the most comprehensive propaganda machine of any country that fought in the war, the Committee for Public Information, which was put under the leadership of a guy called George Creel, who was partially a journalist, partially a PR guy, and he worked on Wilson's 1916 presidential campaign. And this thing is like top to bottom. Uh, in, at first, actually, censorship was also uh, given to it, then that was adjusted. But Creel views his job as essentially a marketing campaign, right? He's like, this is the biggest kind of commercial marketing campaign in history that we now have to run. And U.S. popular advertising was more advanced, I don't say ethically or morally here, I mean, from the techniques of advertising than anywhere else in the world at the time. And they used that to reach the public through the Committee for Public uh, Information. They had all sorts of collaborations with advertising companies. They had these four-minute men who would go around the country and give a four-minute speech about you know, supporting the war effort in the four-minute intermission when it took to change, that's how long it took to change the cinema reels in the in the movie theater. So they'd get up and have a speech. It used to be music or whatever before that, but now it's like war stuff. They give over a million speeches in the in the war, and they have divisions that are devoted to pictorial advertising. So that's kind of the stuff that I was more interested in. And eventually, they even have a cartoon bureau for editorial cartoons and all of that. So yes, uh, the U.S. in a way is different because it's more comprehensive and more organized and in a way sort of more modern, I guess, if you think about the marketing side of it, um, and somewhat less coercive. The Creel's strategy was really to get the journalists, the business people, the cartoonists, and so on, to voluntarily sort of toe the line. And by and large, that actually worked. Like they sent all the professional cartoonists in the country, or all, most, uh, a bulletin every month with suggestions for themes and topics and captions. And then the artist was to sort of riff off of that and make the cartoon for the newspaper that he worked for and, and that sort of thing. There were consequences if you didn't do that, but not quite as harsh as in Europe. 
um, Robert Miner comes to mind. He was uh, he refused to to draw pro-war cartoons for the newspaper that he worked for in New York. The name escapes me now, whether it was the World or the Herald. Um, but yeah, he just got fired. So then he went into a left-wing uh, news magazine called The Masses, which had a lot of anti-war cartoons, but eventually in 1917, they were shut down. So yeah. Uh, so yes, the US uh, is a bit different, um, but of course there's overlap. It's interesting to hear that, you know, uh that it was kind of like a bottom-up effort with these cartoons, where it's like, it's not like, hey, here's a cartoon to run in your newspaper provided by the U.S. government that has been sort of drawn by us. It's like, oh, no, here's just some themes and thoughts. Please do what you will. Yeah, it's kind of, it's a back and forth, right? It's a sort of, we're setting the table, but you cook the turkey and put it on it. I'll throw in a turkey reference because today is Canadian Thanksgiving. So, (laughs) Um, and you can see, you can see how that works well, and what, one of the ways, an example that I love for that is um, there's a very, very famous American cartoon from way back in 1871 by uh, Thomas Nast, a very famous uh, cartoonist, and he was poking fun at a corruption scandal in the New York state government at the time. And he had, you know, the governor's clique all pointing at each other, blaming each other for this corruption scandal in a circle. And in 1914, there's a great cartoon showing the outbreak of the war using that same kind of trope, where you have all the different powers of Europe standing in a circle, pointing at each other. And then in 1918, I found uh, a great cartoon about who's to blame for the war. And this time, in that circle, pointing at each other are only leaders of the central powers. And so that is kind of that evolution, 14 to 18. And it's got some, you know, pure American tradition uh, that you can see developing there. And the difference is uh, the U.S. is in the war in 18 and not in 18. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Throughout this process, we've been talking a lot about visual propaganda, right? These are cartoons, these are posters, these are, you know, in in magazines. Um, Could you talk a little bit about how propagandists at the time kind of used the visual nature of what they were creating to amplify their message or sort of amplify their meaning? 
So one of the one of the things that I think is most interesting about visual propaganda, so about pictures, is how they relate to language. Because there's an argument that's made in intellectual circles, right, that a picture is actually a text. You're just reading images rather than words. But it uses the same techniques to sort of sway us, to persuade us. It uses metaphors. And a lot of how we process language is through metaphors, right? Like up is important or up is happy. It's embedded in a lot of our, you know, down is sad, down is defeated. Um, I'm feeling down means I'm feeling sad, right? That's one very small example of a language metaphor. And uh, this, is a, this type of metaphor is embedded in all of these visual propaganda materials. For example, you can have, I'm thinking of one particular cartoon, an American one, where you have Kaiser Karl, so the young successor to Franz Josef, it depicts him on the mountainside. Makes sense. Austria's in the Alps, right? And he's shoveling snow, trying to get rid of it. And there's an avalanche coming for him from above. And the avalanche is labeled U.S. entry into the war or U.S. declaration of war. So there's a lot going on there, right? You have the metaphor that the state of Austria-Hungary is represented by this one person. So states are people. In a way, we can personify it that way. Then you have this metaphor about the relationship of power, that the avalanche is from above. So it's higher, it's more powerful than Carl, who's below it, who's also smaller. So bigger is also more powerful in, in our mind's eye, right? And then you also have the metaphor of nature, right? Something is a force of nature. That means two things. That means it's unstoppable by human. The U.S. here is a force of nature, and Austria-Hungary is a human. So there's no way that Austria-Hungary could ever stop, you know, the U.S. war effort. And it's natural. It's inevitable. It's the way things are supposed to be. It's not, you know, the U.S. government didn't decide X, Y, or Z. Avalanches happen because they're supposed to happen. Whether you believe in God or nature or the natural order of things or whatever, that's how it is. Right? So you then have this metaphor that, like, the, the US is the way it should be. It's the natural way of things uh, that the US has declared war and will defeat Austria Hungary. So that is the kind of, let's say, the, the kind of way that one can use to try to think okay, it's very hard to measure, how, you know, how successful propaganda is, but we can try to understand how it's working, like how it's perceived and how it, what sort of buttons it pushes in our, in our brains. Another thing would be in the context of war, how martial are these depictions of your enemy, right? So you can either say that they're a threat and depict them as, you know, very threatening, but very often you can try to sort of delegitimize that state as they did with Austria-Hungary towards the end when they wanted to break it up. Um, and you can also emasculate the leader, right? By showing them as, a, as less of a man or less of a soldier. So very often you'll have these images, for example, of uh, Emperor Franz Josef, Austria-Hungary. They show him in his uniform with his beard and so on, but his 
great coat military style will be tattered, his beard will be unkempt, and a beard, of course, is a sign of you know masculine virility, and your uniform is a sign of authority as a leader, but also as a military uh, person. And he's often depicted as wounded, not whole, so like missing a leg that's been amputated, he's on a crutch and so forth, right? So those kind of symbols send a message that of weakness, right? Of femininity or not masculinity, let's say, not virility, not martial prowess. Um, and it's being conveyed to us through these symbols of, you know, beard uh, equals virile or masculine and uniform equals, you know, is a, is a, a barometer of your soldierliness. Um, yeah, so th those are some of the, I mean, I know it's a bit, it's a bit thinky and so on, but next time you look at a cartoon in a newspaper or a meme for that matter, although memes are slightly different, um, yeah, think about that and you'll see some things will, will jump out at you. Playing with light and dark as well, right? The, the lighting in a cartoon is important because light is good, dark is bad, of course. And uh, so there's one, uh, yeah, there's one from the outbreak of the war where Franz Josef is, is kind of crouching there with this personification of death and this personification of Mars, of God of War. And they're all very darkly shaded pointing over at the horizon, which is all light, and there's this female figure of peace. Right? So this light and dark is a very clear evil and good kind of uh, metaphor as well. I think it's definitely something where those are things you don't necessarily think about when you look at, our, uh, at a cartoon, but that's one of the reasons cartoons or and visual sort of items are so powerful, right? Is because even without thinking about them, you see the enemy's emperor in his tattered uniform and, and you know, on a crutch or something. And you, you instantly like start thinking about the enemy as weak or, um, you know, easily conquered and things like that. Precisely because it is, according to this theory, right, which is part of this linguistic turn in the social sciences and, and humanities, um, it's tapping in to our less than conscious brain in terms of how we process information via metaphors. I mean, for, for God's sake, Aristotle was writing about how we understand things through metaphor and so on. So there's, there's, something, uh, there's something there. And if you also think long enough, usually you can come up with a figure of speech or a turn of phrase that corresponds to that. And that, I think, uh, was kind of a, a penny-dropping moment when I started on my master's thesis, where I just started seeing these turns of phrase and expressions jumping out of me off the page, and I'm looking at images, right? So it's, pretty, it's, a, it's a pretty cool topic, I think. Excellent, excellent. And, you know, when we're, we're looking still at kind of the United States here, you know, we're different countries treated differently like you, you know you mentioned that cartoon in 1918 where they're all pointing at each other but was there kind of a hierarchy of of enemies happening um maybe driven by a perceived threat level from the united states government or some other um factor yes 
without a doubt this comes through loud and clear uh my own research was about depictions of austria-hungary so cartoons and so on lampooning um austria-hungary and there's no comparison between them and germany in american eyes but also in french and british eyes of course the germans are almost exclusively shown as the main enemy they are shown as more of a threat they're shown as more dangerous they're shown as being the decision makers in the alliance they are depicted um differently than austria-hungary in all those ways they're they're usually whatever symbol is showing germany whether it's the kaiser a soldier uh, an eagle whatever it's it's bigger than the austro-hungarian one or it's above it and these are kind of visual metaphors that you know convey the importance of it and that, that sort of thing so uh there's no question that germany is is pretty much exclusively shown as the main uh the main enemy interestingly enough for germany as i mentioned it becomes britain and then they sort of use france in a similar way that the allies used austria-hungary as kind of the lackey as kind of the one being being uh, led to the slaughter by the evil mastermind of the british in this case um who are kind of making sure that their empire remains intact and profitable it's always about money with the british uh, from the german point of view by using french uh, troops as essentially cannon fodder whatever so yeah on both sides there's this prioritization of of one member of the alliance germany or or britain i find it really interesting because earlier you mentioned that like in germany there was a shift like from from russia to britain over the course of the war um that that's something that's interesting that i'd never really thought about how how that might have like how the German government was portraying the primary sort of enemy in the war that could shift o- over time. Yeah, there's there's some different reasons for that. I mean, the shift happened quite quickly hmm. because at the very beginning of the war, of course, the Germans are going with the assumption, or let's say in the crisis where, where it becomes clear that there could be a war happening, the Germans are working under the assumption, a hopeful assumption, that Britain will be neutral. So. For them, the big threat at the beginning of the war is, you know, they've got most of their troops on the Western Front. It's the Russians who actually do invade East Prussia and are on German soil. And there was all this talk leading up to the war about Russia's buildup, military buildup, much larger, more modern army than it had even in 1905 when it fought against Japan, for example. And so this is a source of fear for the Germans. But also there are ideological factors that make Russia into a particular threat. And this is kind of this clash of civilizations idea that, you know, Germanic, Teutonic, Central European civilization is bound to clash and is under threat from Eastern European Orthodox Slavic civilization, so to speak. And that's what makes Russia a big uh, bugbear, so to speak, uh, pun intended. But then very quickly this shifts because Britain is of course a far more dangerous power and because Germany gets the military situation under control in the east and Russia is no longer threatening German territory and because 
the Germans feel that they can have the high moral ground with respect to the British because the British jumped in sort of unannounced in an and in the German from the German point of view, they shouldn't have. It wasn't worth it. Their reasoning wasn't valid about Belgium and so on and so forth. Right. So um kind of like the Austrians did with Italy. Ah, you stabbed us in the back, you sort of jumped in, it's not fair. And for all that combination of combination of reasons, threat level and the sort of surprise, uh yeah, the Germans switch it over. I guess the British are a really easy like enemy to portray as well because of like the blockade and the problems that, that the economies of Germany and Austria Hungary have, where you know the Russians and the French are far away. The British are the ones causing you to not have as much food as you would like right now. Yeah, that's true. Um in the end they the German propagandists tried to, you know, make that work, but they don't appear it's this extreme I'm hesitating because it's so hard to judge. This is something the historians struggle with mightily, you know, how to judge the success of of propaganda. Um the kind of very soft consensus is that the Germans and the Austrians were not as good at it, even though they had, you know, they had opportunities to to capitalize on on um on different Allied war uh, policies like the like the um the blockade, yeah. Um, so speaking of kind of evaluations and conclusions, you know, how do you think, or what do you think of how propaganda during the war is remembered? It seems like there's kind of a tendency, as with a lot of subjects around the war, to just remember like the bold and extreme examples. Um, I think of the German or the, the British poster that everybody knows about with like the German eight holding the woman. Um, I, th- I think I'm getting that right. Um, but it seems like, you know, there's there's so much sort of subtlety in sort of what was happening that, that probably isn't remembered today. Well, there are some constants in propaganda, you know, going way back. The Franco-Prussian War was a big step in the development of propaganda, but there was lots uh, before that, Napoleonic Wars, Revolution, French Revolution, and so on, uh, even the U.S. Revolution. But I think the First World War really brings it to another level and we've we've never gone like i think once you go there you can't go back uh, in a sense so there are a lot of ways that maybe are more subtle that have stuck with us one of them i think is the loss of faith in public information from the government or from sort of official received sources and institutions when it comes to armed conflict uh, of any kind. Like, for example, uh, in the interwar period, people looked back and said, hey, a lot of this stuff was exaggerated at best or made up at worst. So we can't trust that sort of thing. And what happens then in World War II, when stories start filtering back about what the Germans are doing in the Holocaust and in, in Eastern Europe and so on, and in the camps, there was some degree of doubt that it could be that bad because of the experience in the First World War. On the other hand, <laughs> the Germans took the opposite lesson. Ludendorff and Hitler wrote about this in the 20s. Hitler writes about it in, in Mein Kampf, that like, ah, the British were way better with than us. That's what beat us, you know, not militarily, of course, heaven forbid, 
beaten militarily. Can't beat the German military. What do you even even suggest it? (laughs) Must have been the propaganda. So that's what we need to do. We need to lie and exaggerate like the British did. And that's how we win. But I think um, there are some like meta principles that really were brought to the peak in the First World War, like this sort of Manichaean idea that your side is is fighting for civilization and the other side is sort of fighting for barbarism. Um, you know, Kultur versus civilization is how the Western allies tried to frame it. The Germans had this idea of Händler against Helden, so merchants against heroes. So they viewed themselves as like a real true spirit and a spiritual civilization of values, whereas the Atlantic powers were just, you know, materialistic, morally bankrupt sort of commercial uh, systems. And I think we still have that in our public discourses about clash of civilizations, about different wars that have come since then, recent wars on terror or different places, that is still kind of part of the dynamic that it becomes this existential thing um, in the same way that it first really did in the First World War. Um, the other thing I think, or one of the other things I think that is important is kind of the f- fetishizing of military technology as a part of war propaganda purposes. Like, how can we lose if we have all of these new eight-inch howitzers that are in this newspaper picture in London or whatever? Like, look at how many there are. Look at the new tanks. I mean, the tanks made a contribution to the Allied victory, but of course, in 1916, even in 1917, they are not, you know, a decision-making weapon in any way. Even in 1918, they're a part of a system that brings a decision. But man, they're they're propaganda gold, right? They even had, uh, you could visit a tank inside if you bought a war bond, right? That kind of thing. And I don't think I need to use too many examples of the last few decades that I think, you know, our technology is so advanced that of course we're going to win to make the point that that's still relevant, right? Um, Yeah, there's a lot. Um, It's interesting that there, there are so many things just in general that you can kind of trace back to this moment you know i think um the, the first world war is seen as the first or or maybe not the first but like a period where so much of warfare is kind of amplified in a way that was not seen before and those amplifications and those effects go far beyond just the battlefield and how the war was prosecuted at the point of the spear i guess and and really is is was pervasive throughout the societies involved yeah, that's totally true. And that's uh, that's what I was uh, trying to express uh, before as well, just before, was that this propaganda is not only, let's say, not only directed in a quote-unquote positive way that, you know, we're going to make it and our side's going to win and our side is right. There's also a part of this legacy of propaganda that's sort of directed against one's own right? Because you need to also find excuses for when things don't go as well. So one of the things that governments did at the time 
was also look to find scapegoats internally uh, or profiteers sometimes, although that's a touchier uh, subject, but like shirkers, people who aren't doing their duty, people who aren't signing up, people who are hoarding their food, people who are eating too much, uh, spies, people who don't support the war effort are not patriotic or they're traitors. Um, and I think that is something that totally has never left us as far as any kind of situation of conflict is concerned. I would even say that that has, now I'm going out on a slight limb here, a bit of a commentary on, on contemporary society, but I would even say that that has not, it's not limited to wartime or a, or a conflict now, that that has kind of grown roots in normal political debates and political conflicts domestically within countries uh, at this stage. Obviously, I'm not particularly happy about that development, as I think is true for many people. But I think that there is a line to be traced there, however squeakly. Yeah, and it's definitely something you can see, like, really prevalent in the post-war years in nations that um, where the war did not go as they had hoped, when you start looking at Germany or Italy or, or various nations in Eastern Europe. Yeah, no question. I mean, then you get the whole Bolshevism question as well where you know we're trying to create new nation states so you're either with our nation or you're some horrible bolshevik or you're with the other nation that's trying to kill us uh, or whatever so yeah that that just amplified it in in those fragile and sort of broken regions after the after the war <laughs>